You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Arthur Parkinson and Sarah Raven. Today we're going to be talking about crocuses, antirhinums, otherwise known as snapdragons, and chard. Outside now, my garden's getting its first proper pools of spring colour, thanks to one small but incredibly wonderful bulb called the crocus. And I'm so glad to be looking out the window today at these beautiful Cadbury Purple Chocolate Bar Dolly Tubs, thanks to them being brimming with a crocus called Flower Record. It's quite a big wrapper of a flower, and it's like a lovely, almost blown up balloon. And it's quite dull today, but I guarantee you when the sun comes out, each flower will open, and you'll see these most incredible orange stamens that are like burning little flickers of candles. And what that will bring into the garden will be the first proper buzzing of the year, the queen bumblebees who will be looking around the sky at this time of year and gravitating to anywhere that's got these flowers in them because they're stacked full of pollen and nectar. And I'm sure at Perch Hill, Sarah's got many more varieties in flower too. I love crocus as well. I I really, I love them having seen them in the wild um, with my dad when I was a child in roads, just beautiful carpets of these things. And also on a botanizing trip in March with my dad, uh, well, my whole family actually, up a a mountain called Monte Grappa, uh, which is where that delicious spirit comes from in Italy. And it was, it's just amazing. As soon as you get to the snow melt, so where the snow basically turns to mush, you get this, this incredible line for as far as you can see of where these crocus are just, just coming into flower as the snow withdraws further and further up the mountain. You get this incredible moving line of crocus. It's just, it's a magical, magical sight. And um, I am gradually uh, trying to get crocus established here. We have a wildflower lawn right outside a huge window from our living room, which we look out at, obviously, all times of the year. And crocus, just as you say, Arthur, is one of the first things that gives us that real incredible show. And I love the one called Orange Monarch, which is like the most saturated orange, like a sort of tangerine. But Mm. it's been painted uh, like a Japanese painting um, with the most delicate, dark, dark, crimsony brown um, sort of markings on the outside of the petals. I mean, I love the inside of the flower just like you do, but I also love that delicacy of the outer petals and I often pick those for just tiny little jugs or tiny little egg cups for having on the table at this time of year. Yeah I love them too specifically because they are one of those lovely flowers that fit into egg cups and um, I've got orange monarch also and a crocus that you introduced me to several years ago which I think is part of that kind of species crocus class called spring beauty Oh, and yes. It's the most lovely blushed lilac lavender with a purple stripe, isn't it? And yeah. again, with that orange stamen just bursting out the heart. Yeah. And I've got them almost treated as perennial in quite decent sized coal buckets. They're underplanting my Budlia Buzz series 
which um, for those of you that don't know, are the miniature buddleias that have been bred to grow in containers. And so the crocus really complement their silver leaves at this time of year. And that whole containers, which are kind of at the bottom of my big dolly tubs, they're kind of what I call my bee and butterfly pots. So the crocus are the first offerings of nectar and pollen, and then the buddleias later in the year will will give the bees and butterflies a, a second offering. So I find that the crocus like to be left alone. And actually, they've been in these coal buckets now for three years and they're definitely multiplying, um, mm. which is lovely to see. Yeah. And I remember once actually for Britain in Bloom, I visited Harrogate in, mm. I think it must be like the last week of February, first week of March. And there's that whole huge almost like park. It's got a special name, which I'm afraid I can't quite remember in Harrogate, which is literally a sea of crocus. And I remember just being completely blown away by it because I'd always thought of those big chunky crocus almost as a bit too park-like. But actually Mm. en masse, they they look just like sort of incredible candles, just as you say, off as far as you could see. And the key thing is that they were heaving with pollinators. Mm. They were heaving with large fat bumblebees and actually some early emerging honeybees were there as well. And I remember just, I was filming the garden as well. And I remember us just sort of all being quiet and us just recording the noise of the bars of these mm. bees. And this was, you know, just as we were coming out of winter into spring and it was the most incredibly heartening sight. So crocus are crucial for that. I think it's just that, that remembering that having a rich pollen and nectar source early in the year is just so important for our pollinator survivals. Yeah, and as as you say, I think quite often with these small flowers, it's often a numbers game, isn't it? If you just choose to plant a dozen, they don't give much of an impact. But I know at Perchill and in my garden, they're kind of like the, the last layer of a bulb lasagna before we cover it with compost. And probably my dolly tubs, I certainly plant at least 50 if not more crocus bulbs as that layer. But what also I like about them, as as you've taught me, is the foliage that comes later from those flowers really does complement the, mm. the edge of a pot when the tulips are in full bloom. It's like having a, a skirt around these dancing flowers and they really soften the look of a pot, don't they, later mm. on in the spring? Yeah, they do. The flowers come first and then the foliage. That's absolutely right. I remember when I first started gardening proper here i i was an intern at great dixter for a few months not very long but i remember it it took us into the time of bulb planting and fergus garrett the head gardener at great dixter of course taught me how to plant crocus and they are so beautiful at great dixter at this time of year i mean i would practically travel across the world to go and see their bulb meadows in march they're absolutely exquisite and they start with the early crocus, like Thomas and Ianus, and then they move into the sort of middle season varieties, chrysanthus, etc. And um, absolutely incredible. But how they gradually add to them every year and have been doing for about a century is that wow. they will get a handful in their hand and they literally just throw them. And where they fall is the most natural way of of planting them. So even if you have five falling almost together and then nothing or five and then three that is exactly where you should plant them i mean you can tweak them a little bit if they're literally on top of each other but just making it uh, that being um, how you plant is is the best system and i, I actually remember monty don teaching me 
the quickest way of planting crocus. And he would get a crowbar and he would just knock it with a hammer in. So just get a little hole, just knock it in, move on, knock it in, move on, knock it in, move on. And he would just put these little holes all the way across his lawn and then plop just a tiny bit of compost into the bottom of that hole, crocus on top, and then compost over the top of that. And that is a way that you can actually get a couple of hundred planted in half an hour. You know, it's a really quick and simple system. So while we're on pot toppers, one of the things that I also love as well as crocus over the top of our tulips is actually rainbow or bright lights chard. And I know you love that too, don't you, Arthur? Yeah, I do. It's like the stained glass creature of the vegetable garden. Yeah, you know, red, yellow, you get the stems and then the actual leaf. The one I'm looking at is really dark red, like a beetroot leaf even. And they're so good because just like with kale, I can pick them lightly. I can't absolutely sort of crop them to the ground, but I can pick them lightly all the way through the winter using them in the kitchen. And then up come the tulips or the narcissus through them. And I've got that sort of double succession. And uh, yeah, they're really, it's a great thing. And it's such a versatile plant in the kitchen, chard. I mean, I'm just mad on it. I was brought up on it really, because it was one of the things in Scotland that you could easily grow. And Swiss chard uh, is the one with a huge, chunky white stem in the middle. And uh, how I use it is I always bring it into the kitchen and I immediately remove that midrib. So that, that sort of big chunky stem And sometimes I'll give those to the hens or sometimes I'll cook it. But the reason to remove it is that the green takes less time to cook than the stem. So if you cook them together, you overcook the green or you undercook the white stem. So by splitting them, and what I would do is I would either uh, braise them in in the the pan, uh, the stem, for three minutes and then add the green. Or even if I'm boiling them, I would put the stem cut into sections into the boiling water for three minutes and then I would add the green and then you get a perfect combination. And I adore them with nutmeg and creme fraiche it for a pasta or in a gratin with lots of parmesan. And um, actually in Provence, they put mussels in a charred gratin. And that sort of, it's not bitterness, but that sort of depth kind of irony flavour is a perfect complement to the sweetness of a mussel. It works excellently. How would you use charred Arthur in the kitchen you wouldn't would you well I'd be quite reluctant to pick any because I whenever I have sown it myself I'm I'm a real cruelty person to them as seedlings I only want to keep the the colors I like which are the ruby and that lovely almost acid nightclub pink that, yes. that um, chard is so I mean I'm always jealous it's one of those winter vegetables whenever I'm walking past an allotment plot I'll always have a nosy to see if they've got any because even in the depths of, you know, January when everything's really cloddy and nasty and you wouldn't want to even go in the garden, really, to have a few big beasts of rainbow chard, I think, is the envy of, of any gardener. So I should really learn when is best to sow it because I've always got quite wimpy chard in my garden, whereas what I want are a nice, beefy, big, you know, colossal leaves of colour. So I don't know what time of year you sow it at Perch Hill. So I would always sow it twice. I would sow it in March and that would give me a crop within eight weeks. But then Mm. definitely I would sow it again in August and that will be the one that will give those wonderful plants right the way through the winter. Ah, lovely. 
The other thing I wanted to mention in this episode, just because there's so much at the forefront of my mind right now because I've been sowing them, and those are the snapdragons or antirhinums. And I have become increasingly obsessed by these because there's been such incredible breeding of these plants, mainly in Japan, actually. And we did a big trial of them here last year. And whatever colour you like, you can have a snapdragon. So I started... 25 years ago, growing one called Antirhinum Liberty Crimson. And I still adore that. It's sort of real velvety colour. It's very much your colour, actually, Arthur. Yeah, it's a beautiful flower. But I've now got more and more into slightly soft colours as well as the dark and rich ones. And I adore this series called the Chantilly series of snapdragons, which, as I say, were bred in Japan. And the reason I particularly adore them is they come in an amazing range of colours and they're scented. They honestly are. They smell of fruit. They smell of a fruit bowl. They're absolutely amazing. And they come in rather sort of fruit bowl colours. I love the apricotty one, but there are there are lots of different ones. There's bronze, there's there's a bright red, there's a deep orange, there's a deep crimson, there's a white. And the reason they're different to what are classically called a snapdragon, which is the snap dragon with a double lip is that these actually only have a hood they 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 don't have the bottom lip they only have the top lip but you want to sow them in the last couple of weeks of february or the first couple of weeks of march because they take a while to germinate and they're one of the slowest of the cut and come again annuals to grow to a decent sized plant so have you sown any yet arthur well, I, I don't sow my own snapdragons, I'm, I'm afraid, Sarah. Luckily, there's a wonderful company that will send them me as plug plants, and that's what I did last year. I ordered our um, Sarah Raven <laughs> Antirhinum mix, which is a mix of what are my favourite snapdragons, which are the Sonnet series, and um, oh, yes. there's no pastel or chantilly amongst them. They're all like Liberty Crimson, but the most incredible one, my favourite, is one called Orange Scarlet, which really is like the most gorgeous punch orange bowl colour you could imagine and I planted these into um, my tin baths which line the path to the door and the tin baths are quite big but they're quite shallow so dahlias don't tend to do very well in them but the the snapdragons really did thrive in them and um, we cut them and we got several flushes of them actually but you're totally right once you have cut them they do take a few weeks to get another flower back but the the key thing is to plant a lot Mm. and so we planted about I think about 40 divided them up through the the containers and they gave both a show and provided us with enough lovely flowers for the vase. And I think for, you know, a handheld bouquet, they're the most lovely spear. Mm. And the Sonnet series for me do give you that lovely jelly colours that I really love. So um, I'll be ordering them again to come in the post uh, this Mm. spring because I get a bit annoyed with seeds, to be honest, that are really small. And I find that Snapdragon seed is, as you've said, like little pinches of pepper. So um, yeah. I, I, they're one of the, the flowers that come to me as a, as a grown plug, but they're very happy to be potted on and they're quite robust once they get going. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. Do join us next time where Arthur and I will be talking about all the different sewing systems that we use. So whether it's for the edible garden, the kitchen garden or the ornamental garden, whether it's gutters, root trainers, jiffies, or just simply into a seed tray, which system we use and why.
can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.